0: Alright, thank you, Marcelo. I know that's a difficult passage to read. It's always much easier to read the passage about children obeying their parents and the ones about archipists and all these crazy people. So, uh, thank you for reading today. If you're just joining us today, if you're a visitor, first of all, welcome. Uh, we have been doing a series through the book of Colossians for the last couple of months now. We are finishing that series today. Uh, two weeks from now, we're going to be starting a series on Jonah, which I'm really excited about. Also, I think it's, it's healthy for us to have a, a good balance of Old and New Testament, and so I'm excited for us to start that in two weeks. I'm thankful for this passage today. As weird as it may sound at first, I think that it has a, uh, a potential to profoundly change the way we think about the way we live our lives. And that's true for every part of the Word of God. And so let's just pray and ask that God would help us, uh, that His Spirit would work in us, that we would be able to rightly understand the Word today. Uh, Father, thank You for Your Word. Uh, thank You for this passage, which we know is not an accident. We know that You have put this here for our edification, for our growth. And we are asking that you would just be merciful to us today. We know, that, we know that we are prone to wander. We know that our hearts are prone to be distracted. And certainly we know with uh, all the craziness that comes on a holiday weekend and even the traffic getting here, maybe, maybe some of us are just feeling frazzled today. And so we're praying that our hearts would be comforted, that we would recognize your presence, that we would be blessed by the reading of your word and uh, hopefully by the preaching of your word. God, we pray that you'd be merciful to us, knowing that we don't deserve it, but knowing that you love to show mercy. And so we're asking that your spirit would be at work today, that we would be challenged by the examples that we see here at the end of the book of Colossians. And so, Lord, we, um, we're just uh, um, praying for your grace to be evident, and we're asking their hearts to be ready to hear what your word has to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have to say, I've never been a huge fan of the award shows. I know lots of people love them, but whether it's the Grammys or the Oscars or the Emmys, I just can't get into it. I've tried before, but my attention quickly wanes. I think there's probably lots of reasons for that, but for me, it's primarily about the speeches uh, they're all, prim- they're all uh, remarkably similar in nature. And when I say remarkably similar, I mean that I find them all boring. Uh, I- I'm sure that um, some would say, well, you know, I've, I've heard some great speeches, and-, and that's probably the case. Maybe there's some great acceptance speeches over the years, but from my limited experience... Watching these award shows, the speeches usually go something like this, where it's just a series of thank yous and acknowledgments to people that we never know or we've never heard of, right? So they thank their agent, they thank their manager, and their agent's cousin's dog who inspired them, and just all these people that you've never heard of. For me, it just seems a little bit disingenuous and maybe too routine. But I think if we're being honest, as we read the end of the book of Colossians, it sounds an awful lot like an awards acceptance speech. It sounds like Paul is just name-dropping people and just thanking people that we have never heard of. And so I think our tendency is to probably read a passage like this in the same way that I would listen to an Oscar's speech. And that is to say that at best, we would dismiss it with indifference. And at worst, we would just dismiss it because we don't want to hear it at all. But here's the thing that I think we need to understand, that it is not an accident that these verses are a part of God's Word. Verses 7 to 18 are not the equivalent of a poorly written Oscar speech. There's a reason why God in his infinite wisdom would include these verses in his scripture. As Christians, we believe that all of scripture is God-breathed. And so what that means practically in this case is that Colossians 4, 7 to 18, is just as inspired as John three sixteen. And so what we want to do today is to figure out what exactly is the word of God teaching us. While it may be our natural tendency to simply dismiss the passage because we've never heard of Epaphras or Aristarchus or Justice or all the other names mentioned here, let me encourage you to avoid that temptation because this, in fact, is still the Word of God. And aside from that, I would say this. that I think the longer I've studied this and the more I've thought about it, I think there's some profound truths that are buried in this passage And so let me read the passage again. I know Marcella read it just a minute ago, but I'd like like for us just to see it in its broad context here before we just dive into the specifics. So again, let me remind you as we read, this is the Word of God. Colossians 4, starting in verse 7. Titicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Anissimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning who you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I think there's a lot we could say about this passage, but let me just say a few things today. One is simply this that uh, I think it's worthwhile for us to observe the ordinary nature of Christianity. Uh, Chay mentioned last week in an the announcement that several of us last weekend went to the Regional Gospel Coalition Conference in Boston. And one of the sessions at that conference was simply entitled "This Ordinary Grace," and it was essentially about this idea that God often works through ordinary people doing ordinary things. I think that that idea is obviously present in Colossians chapter four. When we think of Christianity, we probably think of the giants of the faith. We think of people like Paul and Peter and John. And going back to the Old Testament, we think Old Testament we think of Moses and Abraham and Joseph. Listen, that's okay. There's a reason why we think of them as giants of the faith because God worked in them in remarkably extraordinary ways. But the fact is, for the vast majority of Christians, we are ordinary people doing ordinary things. And that's okay. I think that's why it's so encouraging to read in this passage about people like Tychicus and Anisimus and Aristarchus and Justus and Epaphras and Nympha. I think it's encouraging for us to read about these people. It's safe to say then most of these people listed at the end of Colossians 4 would not be what we would consider to be giants of the faith. And this is evidenced by the fact that you've probably met lots of Pauls and lots of Peters and lots of Johns, but I'm guessing you've probably never met an Aristarchus or a Nympha. And if you have, I'm guessing that that's the only one you've met because there are just not many people out there. They're not the giants of the faith. In fact, I would say that by tomorrow, there's a good chance that you will have forgotten all of these names. And and maybe even that's giving a little bit too much credit. Maybe in a couple hours you will have forgotten these names. But listen, there's something here that I think is worthwhile for us to observe. There's nothing overly remarkable about most of the people mentioned in Colossians 4. For the most part, they were just ordinary people doing ordinary things. And yet, 2,000 years later, here they are recorded in the sacred words of Scripture. And so I think it would be helpful for us just to consider what we know about some of these people. And I think in the process as we do that, that it should be encouraging to you that you don't have to be a giant of the faith. You just have to be a person who does what God has called you to do. You just have to be faithful in the task that God has given you. So let's just start by considering Tychicus. Verses 7 and 8, we read this. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. It appears, from what we know, that Tychicus was the primary person who was given the responsibility of delivering the letter to the Colossians. He also, from what we can tell from the book of Ephesians, was probably the person who delivered the letter to the Ephesians, and also, most would say, was probably the one who delivered the letter to Philemon. On a couple of other occasions in the New Testament, Paul mentions Tychicus as a person that he sends out, presumably to deliver a message to other people. And so listen, uh, I think on the one hand, we could say, well, Tychicus was just some glorified messenger, and that's true, but we don't want to sell him short either. When Tychicus would go places, he would often tell about what was happening with Paul, or at least that would be the common practice, is that he would update people on what's happening with Paul. That seems to be what Paul is suggesting here. And if anyone had any questions about the letter, he would also answer some of those questions. And so we don't want to make it sound like he was just delivering a letter. And of course, we also know that delivering a letter back then would have been much more difficult. There were no planes to just hop on or cars to drive. To deliver a letter like this would have been a long and dangerous journey. It would have been filled with danger on every side. And to Titika's credit, it seems that he fulfilled that role without any complaining. There's no doubt that he would have been a man who is viewed to have character. After all, he's been given the task of delivering the word of God. And yet, while all of that is true it's still true that the thing that he is best known for is that he delivered these letters. It's not exactly the starring role in the drama of gospel advancement. In fact, that's evidenced by the fact that probably for most of you, this is the first time you've ever really thought about Tychicus. And yet, despite the fact that he has this seemingly minor role to deliver the letter, listen to what Paul says about him. Again, in verse 7, halfway through, he says this, He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I think Tychicus' life is a good reminder to us of the importance of being faithful in whatever you do, even if it's a seemingly small task. Now, Anissimus, which is the next name mentioned in this list, his background was probably even more humble in nature. Much of the book of Philemon is actually dealing with the person of Onesimus. From what we can gather from the book of Philemon, Anissimus had actually run away as a slave. He was a slave in the household of Philemon. Philemon was a believer in Christ, by the way. Onesimus ran away as a slave, which, by the way, was illegal, and in this culture would have meant that it could have been punished by death. Now, it just so happens that when Anisimus is run away and he's in Rome, he just happens to encounter Paul. And when I say just happens, really what we mean is that in God's sovereign plan, he encounters Paul. And through his encounter with Paul, he becomes a Christian. And so, eventually Anisimus decides that he needs to go back to Philemon, to his master that he had run away from. In fact, this is what the letter of Philemon is actually about. Paul's encouraging Philemon to accept Onesimus not just as a slave, but as a fellow brother in Christ. The book of Philemon is actually one of the reasons why we would say the New Testament does not condone slavery. In fact, much of what Paul says in that letter actually undercuts the very foundations of slavery. Because he's appealing to Philemon to look to uh, Onesimus to as a faithful brother in Christ. And so all of that is the backstory for what he says about Onesimus in verse 9. He says this, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now it's notable that Paul does not label Onesimus as the runaway slave. He doesn't say Onesimus. You probably know him. He's the one who ran away from Philemon. No, he says he is a faithful and beloved brother. We don't know much else of what he's doing other than the fact that he's going back to Philemon but we know that he seems to be faithful in that task. And he refers to him as a faithful and beloved brother. It's yet another reminder to us of the ordinary nature of Christianity. Anisimus maybe isn't doing anything spectacular, but he is being faithful. We don't know much about the next name on the list either, Aristarchus. We know that from the book of Acts, he was a travel companion of Paul on occasions. And from this passage, we know that he was imprisoned with Paul. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, some would say that this is just talking about the fact that he's following Christ. He's a prisoner of Christ. But I think it actually means that he was imprisoned with Paul, that he was uh, either by choice or uh, being arrested at the same time he decided to be imprisoned with Paul. This is about all we know about him. We know that he was willing to risk everything to go with Paul and to be imprisoned with Paul as well for the sake of Christ. Just a faithful, ordinary guy that we know very little about. The next person we know even, even less about. We're actually going to skip Mark because I'll come back to him in a second. But the next person in the list in verse 11, we know even less about. Jesus, who's called Justice. Now, unless uh, there's any confusion, we're obviously not talking about Jesus Christ here. Uh, for good reason, he's called Justice, right? To make a distinction, in verse 11, we read this. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Listen, we know almost nothing about justice. We know that he's a Jew who is now following Christ. We know that in some way he's been a comfort to Paul. It's about it. Ordinary stuff, right? He's comforted Paul. And yet here he is preserved forever in the words of Scripture. We know a little bit more about Epaphras, the next person who's mentioned here. We know about Epaphras from chapter 1. Epaphras was the one who'd started the church in Colossus, and so in verses 12 and 13, we read about his work ethic and his prayer life. Verse 12 says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. This is normal stuff, right? He prays and he works hard. Now, you have to admire the way in which he prays and the way in which he works. The word that's used for prayer here in verse 12, uh, it says that he's struggling on behalf of the Colossians. The word could literally mean wrestled. He was wrestling in prayer for the Colossians. The same type of thing is, is uh, carried with the Greek word in verse 13 when it talks about working hard. The Greek word that's used there is actually very unusual for the word work. The word work appears many times in the New Testament. Only four times does it use this Greek word because... It's a word that oftentimes conveys with it pain. The Greek lexicon defines it in this way, work that involves much exertion or trouble. There's nothing fancy about Epaphras. He prays and he works hard, but he does it for the glory of God. The next person on the list you probably have heard of, but I think his story too is one of ordinary Christianity. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke here, described as the beloved physician, a frequent travel companion of Paul. Some have even said that it was likely that the reason why Luke was traveling with Paul in the first place is because of Paul's ailments and his medical difficulties. And so Luke is traveling with him, possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly in order to just treat him as a physician. It just so happens that Luke also has a keen eye for detail and a ability and a gift of writing which serves him well, of course, when he ends up writing the book of Luke and the book of Acts, a fourth of the New Testament written by this physician, just being faithful to do what God is called him to do. And then there's Nympha, the only woman who's mentioned in these greetings to the Colossians. Uh, by the way, I don't think there's anything to make of that, the fact that she's the only woman in the book of Romans. There's a long list of people, and there's a significant portion of women in that list. I don't think there's anything uh, noteworthy other than to say that she's mentioned here. And what she's mentioned for is decidedly normal. Right? Verse 15 says this. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So she hosts the church in her house. We're not sure. uh, Some have said, well, maybe she's a wealthy widow and that's why she had a house. We're not sure why, but she has resources and she uses them to bless the church. There were likely other house churches in the area, but for some reason, Paul signals out Nympha. We have no idea why, but her presence in this list should be most encouraging to us. I don't think anyone would describe what she's doing as spectacular. She's just opening up her house. And yet here she is, again, forever preserved in the words of Scripture. And really, when you look at the entirety of the list of names here, that's kind of the picture that you are left with. It's a group of people, ordinary people, doing ordinary things that God is using to advance his kingdom. It's a group of people delivering letters and praying and working hard living out their profession as a doctor, opening up their homes for the church. Normal, everyday, gritty, or nitty-gritty stuff, and God uses them greatly. Again, sometimes when we think of Christianity, we think of the celebrities. We think of the John Pipers and the Tim Kellers. But the fact of the matter is, there are very few John Pipers and Tim Kellers. It's highly unlikely that the next Christian celebrity will come from this room. I'm just saying statistically, that's unlikely. Hopefully that doesn't burst anyone's bubble, but I just want you to know, that is okay. Listen, that is okay. We don't need to be the next Christian celebrities. We don't need to be the next Paul. We just need to be faithful to what God has called us to do. There's not room for a lot of Pauls, but there's a lot more room for nymphas and Lukes. And so whatever it is that God has called you to do, that is what we are to do. We are to live out Christ in the ordinary areas of everyday life. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord and not for men. I think that's what's so evident in this list. A lot of these people are just doing normal stuff. They're opening up their house, they're working hard, they're delivering letters, and yet they're being commended. And they're doing it for the glory of God. And that's the thing I think we need to understand, that Epaphras is not just working hard for the sake of working hard, he's working hard for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Nympha is not just opening up her home for the sake of opening up her home. She's opening up her home because she loves Jesus. Luke isn't just carrying out his activities as a doctor just for the sake of treating sick people. He's doing it because he loves God and he wants to advance the kingdom. And listen, this has huge implications for everyday life. Whatever you are doing, no matter how normal or ordinary it seems, our goal as Christians is to do that for the glory of God. And so when you're putting your kids to bed tomorrow night, or tonight, and they're, well, I'll just speak on behalf of my children. Sometimes children are difficult to put to bed, right? It seems that every excuse under the sun comes up. Maybe we're alone in this, but I doubt it, right? And you're putting them to bed. Remind yourself you are doing this for the glory of God. As you're on your way to work tomorrow, pray. Pray and ask that God would give you the desire to bring glory and honor to him, to advance his kingdom through your workplace. As you take out the trash, are you reminding yourself that this is a part of God's larger plan for your life, that there is a sense of purpose, that even as you do the small, ordinary things, you are doing it for the glory of God? Are you opening up your home and using it to advance God's kingdom? Are you cooking? Maybe, maybe you're a great cook. Are you cooking and using food as a way of loving people and, lo- and showing them the love of Christ? Listen, should we be praying? Of course. And should we be reading our Bibles? Absolutely. Should we talk about Christ with others? It goes without saying that we should. But we shouldn't think that those are the only Christian activities. Christianity is made up of the ordinary. It's made up of the everyday. It's made up of the normal. It's lived out by ordinary people in ordinary circumstances. Whatever gifts you have, use those gifts for the glory of God. Whatever situation you find yourself in, use that situation to advance His kingdom can't all be Paul's or Peter's, but there's plenty of room for Nymphas and Luke's. And as evidenced by Luke, sometimes God uses those normal people in extraordinary ways. Luke, the beloved physician who ends up writing a fourth of the New Testament. And listen, this has implications not just for your everyday life, but also your church involvement. Listen, not everyone will be the preacher, not everyone will lead and worship, not everyone will be an elder, but that's okay too. Maybe the area that you are best at is that you can clean like no one's business. And so on Sundays, after everyone's done with the food and there's a mess all over the floor because of all the kids, and you can clean that up, that is a great benefit to the church. If that's you, praise God. Or maybe the thing that you are gifted at is that you can just really relate to kids. And so you teach children Sunday school. Praise God if that's what you can do. Or maybe you have an ear for sound. And you can run the soundboard and you have an ability to be able to just sound that so that it sounds the best for the church. If that's your case, praise God too. Or maybe you have a house that you can open up and use it so that people can come and have care groups or Bible studies. Or again, maybe you have the gift of just being able to cook in a way that is amazing and you can bless people by blessing them with food. Whatever the case is, listen, all of those things are honoring to God. God loves to use ordinary people doing ordinary things. And here's why. Because Christianity is not about us and how great we are. It's about Christ and how great he is. At the heart of the Christian message is that we're not great at all. That we are sinners separated from God. And that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Only, only through the work of Jesus Christ. Only through the fact that God loved us enough to send his son, to die on the cross for our sins, and three days later to be raised from the dead, only through that can we be made right with God. At the heart of Christianity is the idea that we bring nothing to the table. Every good thing we have comes from him, most notably our salvation. And so, of course, it makes sense that he would work through ordinary people in ordinary ways. Listen, there's nothing special. If you are a Christian, there's nothing special about you that made you lovable. It was his grace. That's why you're a Christian. It was his mercy. It was God's power that explains your salvation. So, of course, he delights to work in ordinary people doing ordinary things because it highlights his power and his grace. And in fact, not only does he work in ordinary people, he works in flawed people. Flawed ordinary people. That's why I love that Mark is included in this list. You may have noticed that I skipped over him the first time. Let's go back to verse 10. It says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas... Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, uh, there's very little that's said about Mark that's of note here, right? He sends greetings, there's some st- instructions about him, we don't know what they are. Just ordinary stuff. But how Mark got to be included in this list is actually pretty noteworthy. You may remember Mark, or John Mark, as he's referred to sometimes, from, Act, from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, Mark leaves Paul and his traveling companions, we're not sure why. Uh, we're pretty sure it's not good that he left them. Because in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas split ways because of Mark. Maybe you remember this story. Uh, Barnabas wants to take Mark with him. We learn in Colossians that they were cousins. And so maybe that's why he's more grace-filled towards Mark. We're not sure. But Barnabas wants to take Mark with them on the missionary journey. But Paul has nothing to do with it. He remembers the betrayal of Mark. And he says, there is no way we are taking Mark. In fact, the book of Acts records this as a sharp dispute. And so they part ways. Mark, this is the reason why they part ways, because of Mark, right? This Barnabas, who's known as an encouragement, no doubt was a benefit to Paul and his ministry, but Paul departs from Barnabas because of Mark. Now, fast forward 11 or 12 years later. That's probably the period of time between Acts 15 and the book of Colossians. And this is what he says. He refers to Mark as a, he refers to him in this list of people who have brought him comfort. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And then he goes on to say that these are people who have comforted me. Now, if you fast forward four or five more years, or or actually between um, probably four and eight years, to the book of 2 Timothy, this is the last book that Paul ever writes. This is what he says about Mark in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says this to Timothy about Mark. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Did you catch that? In Acts 15, they depart ways because he's so frustrated with Mark. He splits up, He has a sharp dispute with Barnabas over Mark. And then a period of time passes, um, somewhere 16 to 20 years. At the end of his life, he says this about Mark. He says, "Bring him with me, for he is ver- or bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry." Listen, I love that God works through ordinary, flawed people people that haven't always done things that they would have wanted to do in the past or haven't always handled situations right. But God still works through ordinary, flawed people. And that should bring hope to every person in this room. Listen, I would guess that you're ordinary and flawed. Now, maybe some of you would say, well, I'm extraordinary. Well, that's okay, too. God can work through you also. But just by definition, the vast majority of us are ordinary. And we're flawed people, and yet God can work through us. He uses ordinary, flawed people to advance his kingdom. Now the fact is, and this is really important, he doesn't just use ordinary people. He uses ordinary people working together. And that's actually a really important thing that you see in this passage. The reality and the importance of Christian community. One of the reasons why I love this passage is because I feel like we're kind of let in behind the scenes a little bit. The curtain is open and we get to kind of see what's going on behind the scenes. And we get to see all of the things that happened to make Paul's ministry a reality. Oftentimes we focus on Paul and all of the things that he does. But in this passage, at the very end of Colossians, we're kind of let in behind the scenes and we realize, well, actually there's a lot of people working with Paul. They're working in concert together. All right, let's just um, for a moment think about the letter of Colossians. Okay? Uh, Paul is obviously a gifted writer and a theologian. There's no doubt about that. But assuming that uh, maybe one of the reasons why Luke is with him is that Uh, He had these physical ailments that he's dealing with. It's possible that without Luke and without his medical expertise, Paul wouldn't even be alive to write this letter. Now, given the amount of discouragement that he's facing, it's possible that without the comfort that he mentions here, of people like Aristarchus and Justice and Mark, it's possible that he would have given in to despair or that he would have stopped being encouraged to write these types of things. So it's possible that without people like Luke or Aristarchus or Justice or Mark, this letter never would have been written. But even if it was written, how would have he gotten it to Colossus on his own? He was in prison, right? For the letter to get there, someone like Tychicus had to be able to take the letter to Colossus. Now, the fact is, the letter never would have got to Colossus, or there would be no church to take it to, I should say, in Coloss without the efforts of Epaphras. Right? Epaphras was the one who started the church. Without him, there would be no church to take it to. And without people like Nympha, there would be no place for the church to gather and hear this letter. And so when we first read this, I think we think, oh, that's great that Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians. But do you realize how far this, or how many people had to be involved to make this happen? There's so much going on behind the scenes that we don't even see until we read a passage like this. There's a community of people working together to exercise their gifts that made this letter happen. Perhaps only Paul could have written the letter the way that he did. He was uniquely gifted. But without these other people, it couldn't have happened in the way that it did. Of course, we could say the same thing for our church, too. When people think of our church, like most churches, they probably initially think of the Sunday gathering. and They think of the preaching and the worship. But let's just think for a minute how many things have to happen in order for those two things to take place. How many things have to happen in order for me to stand here preaching? Well, first of all, someone had to share the gospel with me. Right. Someone had to share the gospel with me. Someone had to disciple me along in the faith. I went to seminary and people who were using their gifts of teaching professors taught me how to interpret the Bible to get to this particular church. There was a search committee comprised of members here praying and asking God for wisdom. And that's how I ended up here at New Hope. And then, of course, for me to be able to do this for a living and for me to be able to do this on a weekly basis and devote the amount of time I do without the faithful giving of people to church, there's no way I could do that. And so when you go and you do your job and you faithfully give to the church, that enables me to be able to stand up here every Sunday and proclaim the word of God. And then, of course, there's things like the sound. Without people coming beforehand and getting the sound set up, we wouldn't have a microphone to work with. And without people who are using their technological expertise to record, we wouldn't have an online version of this. Without this uh, crew coming beforehand to set up the stage, this would just be a jumbled mess up here, right? We have all these things that go on behind the scenes. The same thing is true for worship. Without someone willing to run the projector, we would have no idea what the slides are. We would just be guessing the words, right? Uh, actually, that happened today. One of the songs wasn't there. We were just like, what are the words? I don't know, right? So thankfully, we have a projector. Thankfully, we have people like James every week who are faithfully willing to spend their time using the projector to help us see what the words are. Without someone watching the kids, there's, uh, there's usually lots of kids who are involved in terms of, uh, we have parents who are on the worship team, and if there's no one willing to watch the kids, oftentimes it's the spouse, there's no way they can practice beforehand. And without people who are willing to set up, there wouldn't be enough time to be able to practice. Without your generous giving, there'd be no sound equipment. Without someone organizing the schedule, they wouldn't know who's supposed to lead worship. And clearly we could go on and on and on, right? Think about even the building, right? Again, without your giving, there's no way we could rent this building. Without the cleanup crew, there's no way, there's no way that the church would allow us to continue to use this facility. Without the building committee addressing issues that come up, there's no way that we'd be able to use this facility either. I mean, do you understand how deep this goes? There is nothing insignificant when we're working in community together. All right, let me just give you two examples. All right, maybe, maybe someone would say, well, um, my job is to bring the food for fellowship time on Sunday. I'm not quite sure how that advances the kingdom of God. Well, let me say this, Um, maybe, maybe some week there'll be a family who comes and they come to the worship service and they listen to preaching. you yeah, that was okay. And so then they go to the fellowship time, right? And they get there and everyone's gathered around food and they're just having warm conversations and they realize, you know, I kind of like the people here. And now we're not saying that the food was the the key selling point, but we're saying it was a part of it, right? It created a culture which people are like, "I, I feel kind of at home here. And that family over the years gets plugged into the church and they use their gifts to build up this church. And so we wouldn't say that's all due to the food, right? But we would say that was part of it. Uh, let me give you another example. Let's say, um, in fact, I know some people who do this, who every Sunday set up the tables and chairs for kids' Sunday school. All right, now that's, that probably seems at times, I would guess, like a pretty meaningless job. But let's just say that by doing that, uh, the people who are setting up those tables and chairs are saving five minutes of class time every time. All right, and let's just say that there's some week where in those five minutes, there's a conversation that's taking place that if they had 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 to set up, they wouldn't have had time to have. Uh, The teacher wouldn't have had time to have. And because of that, they're able to share the gospel, right? There's some week where in those extra five minutes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly articulated, articulated, and a child comes to saving faith. Now, would we say that the tables and chairs were the only thing? No, but would we say they're a part of it? Absolutely. I hope you understand that no matter what your role is, no matter how small or insignificant it seems, that we're all working in concert together. It's just like um, when you're playing in an orchestra or in a symphony, not, not everyone can play the same instrument, right? We all have different instruments to play and that's what makes the sound so beautiful. And so listen, whatever your role is, even if it seems small and insignificant, know this, that God can use you. Just be faithful with the gifts that he has given you. We are to function together. We are a body. We have a role to play. And sometimes that role will seem ordinary. Sometimes it will seem Normal. Sometimes it will seem like no one notices. Listen, that's okay too, because we're not doing this to get attention. The reason why we do all these things is because we love Jesus, and we recognize that He rescued us. And we're serving because we know that one day we will be with Him forever, that there's an inheritance that is waiting for us. And while we may never get the pat on the back for setting up the tables or chairs or bringing the fellowship food, it doesn't matter because we're doing it for the King anyway. We're working together. So don't wait for the spectacular. If you're waiting for that spectacular moment to jump in and to get in the spotlight, don't wait for it. Just jump in and serve wherever you are. Faithfully live out everyday Christianity in all the aspects of your life, no matter how small it seems. But most importantly, and this is the most important thing about this passage, we must cling to Christ. Listen, there's a lot of really encouraging stuff in this passage, but there is one giant warning. Verse 14, verse 14 says this, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Now, at first, I'm guessing this doesn't sound like much of a warning, right? Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. It's fair to say that does not sound like a warning. And you can probably assume that this is not the type of warning that you would use. For example, I can't imagine gathering my kids around and say, all right, listen, kids, I've got a warning for you. Luke, the physician, greets you, and so does Demas, Right, at that point, uh, that wouldn't be a warning. That would it'd be a warning. The warning would be that I'm going crazy, right? If I gave that type of, of warning to my kids. So you might be saying, well, what is the warning here? Well, the warning is not actually in the words. It's in the life of Demas. All right, I want you to flip to the book of Second Timothy. It's just a few books to the right here. Right, again, this is the last book, so we're talking four to eight years later. Second Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10. Again, this is the last book written by Paul, 48 years later. It says this, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, I guess we don't know for sure, but most scholars would say this language almost certainly means that Demas had departed from the faith. Now, if that won't sober you, I don't know what will. Because in the book of Colossians, in this list of people who are being faithful, in this list of people who are sending greetings, amongst that list is Demas. But in less than 10 years, he's abandoned the Christian faith. I don't know what to say other than we need to be on guard. And, most importantly, that we must cling to the person and work of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy says that Demas fell in love with the world. We don't know exactly what that meant. Maybe, Maybe there's some sin that entangled him. Maybe he just got tired of persecution and he just wanted comfort. Or maybe he got so caught up in ministry that he fell in love with ministry, not Jesus, and he just loved the praise. We're not sure. Whatever the case is, he lost sight of Christ. And listen, it would be really easy for us to do the same, even as it relates to what we've been talking about today. We could talk about this idea of being normal, everyday Christians. And in the process of that, we could forget that the reason why we do those things is for Christ. It'd be easy for us to say, Well, I'm going to work for God in the ordinary. I'm going to clean up the church for the kingdom of God, and I'm going to raise my kids for the glory of God. And I'm going to use my money to advance the kingdom of God, and forget why we are doing all those things. Listen, the reason why we want to live for God in the ordinary is because we love Him, because He first loved us, or because He sent His Son to die for us, because He sent His Son to redeem us from our sin. This is why we want to live from in the normal, ordinary, everyday stuff. And we must never lose sight of that. We must always fix our eyes on the cross. We must never forget what Jesus has done. It's great to talk about how we should fight false teaching. It's great to think about how we should put off sin and put on Christ. And it's great to think about how to be a godly spouse or parent or employee. It's great to think about why we should pray more, tell people about Jesus, and it's great to think about how Christianity is lived out in the ordinary. And we've talked about all those things in the book of Colossians. But in the midst of all that, we must never forget that Jesus is supreme. We must never forget that he is the one who reigns. We must never forget that he is the motivation. That he's the one who rescued us. That he's the one who sustains us. We must never lose sight of Christ. Listen, we can be doing a bunch of different stuff that looks like we're being faithful. But in the end, if we lose sight of Christ, we've lost sight of everything. Ask Demas. We must cling to Christ. And for that reason, I think it's appropriate that this book ends the way it does. Verse 17 says this, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Listen, we have no idea what Archippus' ministry was. Maybe Paul was concerned that he saw some uh, things that he would later see in Demas, that he was beginning to slip away. Or maybe he was just wanting to encourage him to stay faithful. But either way, it's a good word for us. Be faithful to what God has called you to. Finish the race. Finish the race. And the way that you will finish the race, the way that you will keep the faith, is by continually looking to Jesus Christ and trusting in his grace. Look at the way this book ends. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Then he says this, Grace be with you. Listen, it's the grace of God that sustains us. It's the grace of God that we most need. And I think that's what sticks out most in this ending of the book of Colossians. Colossians. It's not the ordinary nature of Christianity, although that's encouraging. It's not the reality importance of Christian community. That's great too. What sticks out most is our need for Christ. We need his grace. I suppose that's not surprising because that is the theme of the book of Colossians. That Jesus is supreme in all things. That he is better than everything else. And that is exactly why we live for him. Even in the normal everyday, ordinary things. Because Jesus is better. That's why. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder of the supremacy of your son. Thank you for the ways in which you bless us. Thank you for the reminder of these faithful Christians. Thank you for the warning of Demas. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so grateful We're so grateful that we have your word to know how to live and we're so thankful for passages like this that at first seem kind of weird. We're thankful that we are able to read them and that in your infinite wisdom, you saw them best fit for us to read. Father, we're praying that we would be motivated by the supremacy of Christ to live out Christ in the normal, everyday, ordinary stuff. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.